0: visit AscentEquityGroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T EquityGroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only.
1: Essentially to network and to do something. And I always say do something and do it now. And That doesn't mean necessarily to buy a house. Right now. But do something to move you towards that goal.
2: Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, I'm pleased and honored to be introducing you to Trevor McGregor. You recognize his name. He's been on the show multiple times. Just search Trevor McGregor, Joe Fairless, and you'll hear his interviews that I did with him and he had a lot of value during those interviews. Well, he's had a lot of value in my life. For the last five years, I have hired him to be a consultant to help me with my real estate business and just personal stuff too as a life slash business coach and he's taken my game to a different level. Before I hired him I had four single family homes and oh by the way I was also single. Fast forward to today my company controls over 300 million dollars worth of real estate and I am happily happily married. Clearly results are going to vary but He has helped me in five years do things that I didn't even have on my radar. So I suggest that you speak to Trevor McGregor if you're looking to take your real estate investing business to the next level. If you've had success and are looking to build on that success, then he's your guy. Go to trevormcgregor.com or coachwithtrevor.com and you'll be able to apply for a conversation with him, coachwithtrevor.com. We used to do a free consultation. We got too many free consultations, and he actually is pretty full with his consulting program, and he's very conscientious about the value that he adds. He wants to add tremendous value, so he's being very selective with people who he does work with. So go to coachwithtrevor.com and apply to have a conversation with him and then you two can decide if it makes sense to work together or not and hire him as a consultant it has impacted my life in a tremendously positive way him and his wife have gone to my wedding trevor's been in my conference a couple years and i know him well and i suggest that you get to know him as well Coach with Trevor.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Drew Eldridge. How are you doing, Drew?
1: Great, Joe. Thanks for having me on today.
2: Well, my pleasure. Nice to have you on the show. And a little bit about Drew. He has 20 doors and one commercial property. He has been investing since 2006, He builds his rental portfolio, not for cash flow, but for retirement. And we're going to talk about that to learn a little bit more about what that means. Based in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. With that being said, Drew, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus?
1: Absolutely. So I'm an emergency medicine doctor, Joe, and I graduated from residency in 2005. So around 2006, I was trying to figure out... What I wanted to do as I started to actually have a little bit of real income, I started doing a little research and looked to see what all the wealthy people seemed to do to make and retain that wealth. And it seemed like the commonality was real estate. So I started buying or reading every book I could find and kind of looked at the variations and decided that buy and hold was kind of what I thought I needed to get into. So that was 2006. I bought one property after a few months of doing some research. I knew from reading that I didn't want to have the analysis paralysis, so I jumped in there and bought one, which, of course, was my worst deal to date, but uh, (laughs) it got the ball rolling, and I bought a few over the next, I think, seven years or so. After that, decided I need to look at this more as a business. How can I increase my efficiency on this? It kind of went from what I refer to, Joe, as like a hobby real estate investor to actually trying to be serious about it. Mm -hmm.
2: And what transpired after having that mindset shift?
1: Well, I basically bought 13 more doors in about 18 months time period. What I did was I just started networking. I said, I've got to learn more. And for me to think that I can kind of get this figured out on my own is just silly. So what I started doing is I started reaching out to people that I knew were kind of where I wanted to be. And just trying to figure out what would be the best play. And through that, I just found more and more deals. And it seems like I think the phrase is the harder you work, the better your luck is, or something like that. But basically, the more that I was involved in this, it seemed like the more deals came across my desk, and I was just able to start growing. And then also kind of had a mindset shift in the beginning. I bought these houses more for the equity, like you mentioned in the beginning, more as kind of a retirement play. And I'm buddies with Tim Shiner, who was on your episode, 1175. And you know, Tim buys essentially for appreciation. And I kind of had some of that mindset. More than anything, I was buying more for the equity and the long play for retirement because I didn't really need the cash flow this minute. But also some of that paradigm shift that happened about 18 months ago is I moved everything from 10-year notes to 30-year notes and actually did start going for kind of a cash flow play. Not because I needed the cash flow, but it just made more sense because if I want to pay those notes down quicker, I can absolutely do it. But then it frees up some of my monies and I can just use that to build. And then I'm not tapping into my other income to build my portfolio. And so I did have a bit of a mindset shift around that time period.
2: So before, it was more for equity. Now, it's more for cash flow, and as a result, it's longer-term leverage. That's correct. Okay. The first one you said that was the worst deal to date, what are the numbers on it?
1: Basically, I had no idea what I was doing. I kind of thought maybe I knew a little bit. I essentially bought it retail. It was, (laughs) you're going to laugh, it was probably retail, about a $75,000 house. And I think I got it for $71,000, not much of a discount. Also in the beginning, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do the repairs myself. I grew up kind of learning how to do that stuff. And I'm in there fixing holes in the floor and some other things. And I started with a property manager from that very first house, and I'll tell you about that mindset in just a second. But she came in and said, "Drew, what are you doing? You're putting up crown molding. You're fixing this house like it's a flip, or like you're going to move into it." And I'd already spent quite a bit of money in repairs, and but it was just—I think I ended up spending about fifteen thousand. Okay. And you know, the house rented in the beginning for six fifty. <laughs> They're horrible. They don't work out. They do not work out. But it was in an area that I knew was going to continue to grow. And I thought, okay, I'll bank off a little bit of the appreciation. But anyway, looking back on that, it was a horrible deal, but I learned a whole lot from it and tried not to make those mistakes going forward.
2: What it rent for afterwards.
1: I think now it's up to 800, but it's worth probably 115, 120 now. But I still kept it. I probably could better use that money elsewhere, but for now, I've just hung on to it. So, also in the beginning, I had the mindset that I wanted to be an investor, not a landlord. So I think, unlike a lot of people that I talked to, I started off with that very first property thinking that I wanted a property manager. And that's worked out pretty well. I now self manage a couple of the properties just because I'm this far into it, I kind of wanted to learn a little bit more about it. But I think that's an interesting thing that, as I talk to a lot of people, everybody wants to do it all in the beginning. And I think that's great. My situation coming out of residency and not having as much time, having a manager was definitely the right play at that time.
2: You've got a commercial property. Is that where your office is located?
1: No, I'm a partner in a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym. We started a few years ago, and as we grew our membership and increased our numbers, we went from borrowing a mat to a three-year lease on a building that we had a, a place. And then about a year ago, we were able to buy a commercial property, me and my partner, on the gym. And that's kind of my first foray into commercial. Now, the benefit is that I know the tenant. And it's a single tenant, it's us, but it's actually been a great property so far and it cash flows and we've built equity in it and it's been a good deal.
2: You are a business partner in the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu gym and then you as a company also purchased a commercial property? That's correct. Okay.
1: And then we rented it to ourselves.
2: <laughs> is it at market rent?
1: It is. We're able to justify that in cash flow and so it works well.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Did you consider buying a property that had two spots, one for you all and then one for someone else so they could help with that?
1: You know, we had considered that, but really the reason we did not do that, and I think that's probably the smarter way to do it if you're able, but with the business model that myself and the other guy that I'm involved with this and. We kind of said this is the amount that we wanted to have as an outlay for this. And to do that, we needed to stick with just a single tenant size building. Mm -hmm. So that's how it worked out. It was a 5,000 square foot building, and we needed pretty much all of that for our own gym. And for us to purchase a building that would have the size needed for any other tenant was just not what we wanted to do at the time.
2: You've got 20 doors and one commercial property. We talked about the commercial property. With those 20 doors, what's the largest property size in terms of doors?
1: Just a three unit. So most of them are single families and then I've got one three unit.
2: Okay. How are you financing them now?
1: What I had done initially was for those first seven properties that we talked about, because I had put them on short terms, I built up quite a bit of equity by the time I decided to ramp up the second phase. And essentially what I did is I went to the banker and we discussed it and I cross-collateralized most of those properties going forward. And I think I purchased probably about 500000 retail value for about 5000 of my own cash money and then cross-collateralized the remainder off of those original seven properties. So rather than having to come up with large percentage down, that's how I was able to do it and then grow those with reducing my own personal cash outlay and increasing that return.
2: I'm starting to sweat a little bit because I got really nervous when you said you cross-collateralized your properties. So if one property goes down, then it's a domino effect. How do you think about that from a risk mitigation standpoint?
1: That's a very good point. So a couple of things here. So number one, Going forward on all these properties, I've bought them at a low enough cost that I feel that that's less of a concern because when you look across my portfolio, I'm leveraged as about 50% even with that. So I think with those numbers, that doesn't concern me as much as it should. Now, if I were considerably more leveraged, then yes, I absolutely don't think that that's a smart play. But I think as it stands with where my numbers are... That's not much of a concern for me at this point. Also, the other thing is I'm in a little bit different situation than some. I have a decent W-2 income that if I ever got in a real bind, I'm fortunate enough that I can cover some eventualities, at least for the short term. But you're exactly right. There is certainly a risk involved with that strategy.
2: Do you plan on continuing to buy properties around one to three units? or are you changing your approach?
1: I would absolutely love to move into multis, and that's kind of on the horizon. For 2018, that's my plan, is that I would like to educate myself a little bit better about that and try to figure it out. This you know, three-unit, even though it's kind of a multi, I mean, it, it technically is, but it's not the same as buying a, a you know, 16, 20-unit property. That's kind of my next goal. That's what I would like to look into and learn and, and move into
2: What was the tipping point for you that triggered the epiphany of, I want to move from a hobby to a business?
1: I think some of it had to do with just kind of my disappointment with medicine. The thought that ultimately in my job, I get paid when I show up. And if I want something else to grow a business, there's no one that's going to come to me and say, hey, Drew, this is what you need to do to grow passive income. And I knew from my previous properties that had the potential to do it. And short of me going back to school or starting some other business, that was my best opportunity to build that passive income. And then the other thing, Joe, is that I'm a physician. So if my kids want to inherit something or a business from me, there's not one. I mean, they could go to school, but I don't truly have a practice they might inherit. At least with real estate, there is a business that you know I may continue to grow that they could be a part of. And in fact, my 12-year-old bought a house last year, and I'm trying to teach them and give them something that they can grow into as well.
2: I saw that bullet point in your bio, and I was going to ask you about that. Please elaborate on how your 12-year-old bought a house.
1: I've got three boys, 10, 12, and 15. And it's been about a year and a half ago now, we were taking a trip. And I had told my boys, I said, I will pay you $50 to read a book, but I get to choose it. And my 12-year-old is a big reader. He's the one that's a little more on the intellectual side, at least loving to read. So he read Rich Dad, Poor Dad for teens. And part of the $50 was we have to have a good conversation about it where you can explain the point. So I had to read the book, of course, too. And he started telling me about depreciating assets and and liabilities and just truly kind of the understanding of what the point it was trying to get across. And the boys had also been going around with us to all these rental properties for the past several years, and they have some money set up in what's called a drip account. And, and for your best ever listeners that may not be familiar, that's dividend reinvestment plans, essentially where you purchase stocks and you can usually purchase them direct. And they reinvest the quarterly dividends at a discount. So it's compounding interest and dollar cost averaging. And we started that when they were younger and told family and friends, hey, whenever you give gifts of money and things like that, we're going to end up putting that in stocks. And so we had done that over the years. And then also, I think, $50 contribution monthly just was sucked out of our account to make it automatic. And so Cooper had about 20-something thousand dollars that he knew he couldn't touch until he was 18. But he said, hey, dad, reading that book and talking about real estate, what if I use that money to buy a house? Could I use it before? I said, well, maybe so. I said, but you're going to have to try to figure out all the numbers. And essentially, I'm not going to do it for you is what mm-hmm. i told him. So we started going out. We'd grab lunch. We'd go make a list of properties. We'd go walk through. We'd drive for dollars. And I would have him make the calls. He would call the realtors. <laughs> We'd meet them. I'd make the realtors talk to him. They'd try to talk to me and I'm like, no, no, it's Cooper's money. You talk to him. So by the end of it, he's actually talking about foundation. There's a crack here. Do you think that's a foundation problem? i trying to estimate repairs as much as a 12-year-old can, yep. I mean, but yeah. it was really good. And so the naysayers, and there's only been a few, fortunately, for whenever I've kind of told people about this, but we did have to title it in our names. After talking with lawyers and the title companies, they said, it's a huge issue to try to put the minors on the LLC or, or on the contract. So they just said, title it to him at 18. And that's what we did. But we used his money. None of it was from us. He had to pay for the repairs. We checked him out of school to go to the closing. You know, Even um. though he wasn't signing, I, they had to explain it to him. We did use our property manager, but he goes through the statements and looks and sees what the expenses are. Now, he's always like, can I have some of that cash flow to buy a dirt bike? And <laughs> We give him a little bit to make it worth his while. But most of it goes back to basically resupply that dividend reinvestment plan that we started for him with the hopes that he can do it again in a year or so. Mm-hmm. And Joe, I think the thing is, is even if nothing ever comes about it, he's got a house that he can take some cash flow through college or sell at some point for a down payment on his own mm-hmm. house. But even better, what if he takes to this and wants to start doing some real estate himself?
2: Oh, something already has come about it. That's incredible. He's already learning the core principle of Rich Dad Poor Dad, where if you want a liability, then you buy an asset and have that asset pay for the liability. So you want a dirt bike? Okay, well, your house can pay for your dirt bike or... In rich dad poor dad terms, your asset can pay for your liability. He's already starting to see that firsthand. That's amazing,
1: a hundred percent. And it's funny that you said it because I mean that's exactly how he justifies things: the amount of cash flow, and he's like, "Okay, how many months of cash flow until I can blah blah blah?" You know. And my fifteen-year-old is, is jealous. Uh, more, yeah, he's more social. Doesn't really <laughs> care. You know, he's like, "I can't sit down and read those books and do that." And I, at some point, he may. But as he watches his brother get a little cash, he's starting to say, well, maybe I do need to do that. What book was that that I need to read Dad? Mm-hmm. So we're trying to get him involved. And then, of course, the 10-year-old still not quite there on comprehension of all this. But we'll, we'll get there. We'll
2: see. So it's been what fun. The, what are the numbers on your 12-year-old's house?
1: The house that we found for him was a HUD property. When we first looked at it or called about it, it was still in uh, owner-occupant status and it was funny because we had kind of just run the numbers on it because we basically, he and I would go through the numbers on most anything we looked at, and we had come up with a number, and then the realtor called me like right after he had gone to bed and said, hey, this goes to investor status tomorrow. Do you want me to put an offer in? So I gave it to her, and it got accepted, and it was basically we paid 55000 for the house. So we had to figure out his down payment, and then we initially had factored in about 3000 in repairs, and I think there was an additional three because the HVAC needed to be replaced. So the retail value, of course, for what that's worth, is about eighty-five thousand for that house. And he's renting it for eight hundred a month. Mm-hmm. So I think he's all in for out of his own cash. I think seventeen or eighteen thousand or so, and say he's renting it for eight hundred a month. But the total acquisition cost, I think, was sixty-two or so.
2: When you take a look at the generational wealth component and you see what you're building and what your family's building, how do you protect that from an asset protection standpoint? What do you have in place or what will you have in place?
1: Honestly, Joe, that's one of the things that I think is very important and probably something that I'm a little lackadaisical about. This is all in an LLC, but I really don't have a whole lot beyond that. I mean, I've got some umbrella insurance policies as well, but there's really not much beyond that. And as I've started to network and meet people like Tim Shiner and meet local real estate investors here in Oklahoma City, I'm taking little tidbits from each of them. And that's one of the things that's on my list of I probably need to improve. Just like I always tell people that I talk to about real estate, I'm like network, network, network. I went and had lunch with a guy as I kind of started to try to ramp this up. And he looked at me and said, well, show me your numbers. And I did. And he said, well, why is your insurance number so high? And, and essentially told me I need to switch to a commercial policy and save me about 7000 a year. Mm-hmm. And by the same token, networking, these are one of the things that commonly comes up is, well, how are you protecting your assets? And I hate to admit it, but that's something that I probably need to be a little bit more on the ball with.
2: Based on your experience as an investor, what is your best real estate investing advice ever?
1: My best real estate investing advice ever is essentially to network and to do something. And I always say, do something and do it now. That doesn't mean necessarily to buy a house right now, but do something to move you towards that goal. I don't care if that's going out and buying a book, buying a journal to start taking notes in, but do something and do it now. Because I see too many people that say, hey, I want to invest in real estate, but they don't network. They don't bother to take it beyond just talk.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It reminds me of the phrase that Tony Robbins says, when would now be a good time? And it scrambles your brain a little bit. It's like, wait, what? When would now be a good time? So, okay, I I get it. Thank you. (laughs) We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. First, though, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you want to hire the guy who I hire to help me with my real estate investing business, then go to coachwithtrevor.com. That's coachwithtrevor.com. The Real Estate Innovators Podcast explores innovation in commercial real estate technology, design, and development. They celebrate the companies and innovators who are changing the business of commercial real estate and are inspiring the future of how we work, live, and play. Find out more at the realestateinnovators.com. Okay, best ever book you've read.
1: Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It's a book about negotiation. It's something that I have to constantly go back and look at and just this past week it saved me $16,000 on a RV purchase. <laughs> so, highly recommend that book.
2: And I interviewed Chris about 10-15 episodes ago, I think. That's when it released. But if you just Google Chris Voss, Joe Fairless, that interview will come up. Best ever deal you've done that wasn't your first and wasn't your last?
1: It was, again, by virtue of starting to take this serious and tell people that I'm a real estate investor. At the hospital, there was a nurse that came to me and said, I want to rent my house that I have left over for my divorce. And I said, here's how you do it. And she came back to me about six months later and said, will you just buy this house? And I said, "Okay, tell me the numbers." And it values at about seventy thousand. And she said, "I owe thirty-eight on it. Will you go ahead and just pay off the mortgage, and you can have it?" I know those numbers aren't super sweet for probably a lot of your best ever listeners. Yeah, they but are. To me, it was a That's great, incredible. Deal. It was a great. Okay, well, it was a great deal. And here's the other thing too. And this just goes to show you the power of that networking. So that was a year and a half ago. About two weeks ago. Her mom, of all people, contacted me and said, Hey, are you still buying houses? Sure. She said, I have a friend whose mom died, she's got this house, she just can't bear to deal with it. And it's the same sort of thing, tell me the numbers. She wants eighty five for it and I go and talk to her and I got it for eighty two and I did it actually I probably should have paid eighty five. I hope she doesn't look at this. But because of Chris Voss's book, you've gotta make them feel like you didn't just accept their offer because of the psychology of them thinking they could have done something different, but the house is probably worth 150,000. I will probably have to put 5,000 or less into it. And I did tell her your house is worth more, but she was crying and thanking me at the end of it for helping her get this quickly done. So that deal led to a second deal and those two have been some of the best deals so far.
2: How did Chris's book help you save $16,000 on that RV purchase?
1: Really didn't intend to buy an RV, and I was having the one that I currently have worked on. And by the way, love to travel in the RV with the family. It's a motorhome. It's a great way. It's 100% a depreciating asset, but it has emotional importance, and I think it's one of the few depreciating assets I'm cool with. But anyway, I went in and on Monday sat down with them and said, here's the model I'm interested on your lot. And the price that they gave me, we kind of negotiated a little bit back and forth, and I kind of just was like, nope, thanks, and walked out. Because they told me, this is our bottom dollar. We're not going to budge. We came down a couple thousand. So the guy calls me back two days later. Of course, you knew that was going to happen. And I said, okay, well, let's talk. But what I did is I pulled out Chris's book. It had been (laughs) a few months since I read it. And I took some notes. And I said, you know what? I'm going to just try. So we went back and forth. And I used a lot. I used his. Now, how am I possibly going to be able to do that? Yep and a lot of his other little techniques, and it was great. And ultimately, I walked out sixteen or 17000 cheaper than what they told me was their absolute best number on Monday, take it or leave it. I owe Chris some money, apparently.
2: <laughs> I have his email, so I will email him and copy you, and I will tell him that you're paying him $8,000 at least. Don't worry, I got, I'm on that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Or at least buy him a beer or lunch. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think he'll probably take the $8,000 over the beer or lunch. Yeah. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction?
1: I think I kind of alluded to these before. I think number one was paying retail or too close to retail in that first deal. And some of that was also just because I was anxious to get something done and get the first one under contract. So I think that's probably the biggest mistake. And then also included in that deal is the fact of trying to overdo it and not make it a rental whenever that's really what the market I was going for
2: best ever way you like to give back?
1: I'm a reserve deputy with the county sheriff's office here and been doing that for 10 years. I'm assigned to the SWAT team and I do it for free. And in a way, it's my version of community service. So I guess that's one way that I give back.
2: How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you got going on or get in touch with you and say hi?
1: I'll give you my phone number. They're more than welcome to text me. It's 405- I love to talk real estate and I always seem to learn something from everybody I interact with. Also, we're going to try, I've got a cousin. I grew up kind of just outside of Memphis, Tennessee. We're going to start doing some wholesaling in Memphis. So sellyourmemphishomefast.com is our little basic investor website. So if anybody wants to reach out to me there as well, or is interested in the Memphis market, hit me up for that. We're going to Give that a go in
2: 2018. I am surprised that URL was still available, sellyourmemphishomefast.com.
1: No one was more surprised than I was. <laughs>
2: I'll put that in the show notes link. Well, thank you so much, Drew, for being on the show, for talking about how you are, boy, you're involved in a lot of stuff, volunteer reserve deputy, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym partner, commercial owner, although you got a really good tenant since it's you and your business partner, and then a doctor too. I mean, (laughs) I probably ended with the most time-consuming thing, emergency medicine doctor. Thank you for being on the show and then talking about how your 12-year-old bought the house and the approach that you took with him. Certainly a lot of lessons for all the parents. Or people who want to be parents and how to approach an option for how to approach with your kids. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have the best every day, and we'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
2: The Real Estate Innovators Podcast explores innovation in commercial real estate technology, design, and development. They celebrate the companies and innovators who are changing the business of commercial real estate and are inspiring the future of how we work, live, and play. Find out more at the realestateinnovators.com.